Hi, and welcome to this commentary on Fargo, the 1996 film directed by Joel Cohen. My name is Rob Caravaggio. I'm a blogger and sometime movie critic. And if you'd like to sync your copy of the film to this commentary, we'll give you a countdown in a moment here that will allow you to do that. What you want to do uh, is take a moment now and locate the very beginning of the film. Usually on home video editions, there's logos that precede the actual film. Uh, an MGM logo, a Polygram logo, maybe an FBI warning. The first image in the film proper, the actual first image that starts the film, is black, a black screen with white text on it. And the text says, this is a true story, in all caps, at the top. If you pause it, right on that screen, so you have that screen frozen, we'll give you a countdown here that will tell you exactly when to hit play, and we'll all be synchronized and in harmony together. Okay, so, if you are queued up to that This Is A True Story scene, black screen, white text, we'll give you this countdown. You're going to want to hit play in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, play. It's not a true story. The Coen brothers, um have put this introductory text claiming that it's a true story. Uh, they, the story that they have uh, given, or the explanation, I should say, that they have given, is that doing so extends or helps extend the audience's suspension of disbelief. That we, the audience, are more likely to go with a story uh, with wild and crazy and hard-to-believe events uh, if we are under the presumption or if we've been told that it's all that we're seeing things depicted exactly as they happened i adore the beginning of the movie the way it starts with this whited out screen it's a completely white uh frame we don't even realize we're looking at a landscape until we see that fluttering bird there and until the poles and the road and the of course, the headlights begin to come into into focus. Now, as just as this, the two cars here, one towing the other, these Oldsmobiles, right here, just as they crest this snowy hill, we have that wonderful swelling of the Carter Burwell score, the main Fargo theme. Lots of directors, um, since since the beginning of cinema, have used music in movies uh, in, I think, a heavy-handed way to signal to the audience uh, what we should be feeling or how we should be reacting. That can be done really nicely, like uh, in a movie like Psycho, uh, the shower scene. But most of the time, I find that I don't like it. Here in Fargo, and in lots of Coen Brothers movies... This music is 
made uh, being used to create an ambiance. Um, we have the or to create a mood. We have the we have the sense that something momentous is happening, or something pivotal is happening as that car comes toward us and we hear that that music. By the way, the bird in his own commentary on the film uh, for the special edition DVD, uh, the cinematographer Roger Deakins, uh, the cinematographer on the film, uh, reports that the bird was a lucky break, that this was a second unit shot. And they just kind of got lucky with that bird fluttering around. It's the serendipity of movie making. Contrary to popular presumption, I guess, most of the action in the movie doesn't take place in Fargo, North Dakota. So it's interesting that the movie is titled Fargo. The only part that takes place in Fargo, from what I can detect, having seen the movie over two dozen times, is this rendezvous scene you're looking at right now. And uh, as far as opening scenes go in a movie, in movies, uh, this one does a whole lot of work in the sense that, and the way Fargo gives us information and presents characters to us is is unorthodox, but this scene is is especially unorthodox. It's, It's almost bad form in terms of screenwriting borderline in a sense is some people would say that you shouldn't put too much exposition in an opening scene but here i think it's done perfectly frankly like a lot of things in in this movie it is perfect uh, in my view we get exactly the dramatic situation of the movie uh Lundegaard, played by macy is going to have his wife kidnapped so that he can share the ransom with the kidnappers and get out of his financial troubles. We never find out exactly what those financial troubles are. He says personal reasons when he says that. Buscemi, playing uh, the Carl Showalter character, looks incredulous. Now, Peter Stormare is on the right, playing uh, Gare Grisrud. He just sat up uh, the way he did there, glared at at, um, Macy, blowing the smoke out of his nostrils. It's It's a great little bit of acting that he does in this movie or it's it's uh, typical of what he does in this movie he doesn't have a lot of lines but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a lot to do he's always showing us a little something if you, i mean it's a good watch the watch his scenes if you if you watch this movie and just pay attention to him you i mean you really see it he's a uh, incredible now one thing to note here is uh, there are many things to note. Uh, one of the reasons I say the, the this opening scene is doing so much, or the other reason I say that, is not just the exposition, but when we first meet characters in any well-made movie, usually uh, they are doing something or behaving in a way that's quintessential. Think of Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke. Uh, the first time you meet him, he's robbing parking meters. You know, he's kind of a low time, low-level crook. Uh, uh, he's drunk. Um, here, all three of these characters are behaving in a way that is typical of them. That that almost sums them up. Buscemi is a motor mouth. He's doing all the talking. He's a smartass. Um, the Stormar character, stoic, quiet, uh, almost unaffected by what's going on, uh, doesn't show any emotions. And, of course, um, William H. Macy 
his character, Jerry Lundegaard, is soliciting, or I, I'm using the word soliciting, but he's asking other characters. He's always at the mercy of other characters' whims. In, in, in almost in every scene, he's asking someone for something. As right here, pay attention to this composition. Uh, you see how he, uh, meaning Macy, comes from behind, approaches from behind. Now, this is his house, yet his father-in-law, Wade, is uh, sort of holding court. Um, he's uh, in that composition. Wade was watching the hockey game, squeezing that thing in his hand with the drink, and Jerry comes from behind, uh, asking him for something. Uh, that composition is going to be repeated. Notice here, uh, as they we have this wide shot of them eating, uh, that banister there on the left hand side of the screen. That's a little bit of visual foreshadowing, if that makes any sense. Uh, that that banister, and in fact the whole staircase, is going to come into play, and it's going to sort of be in the frame uh, at a couple key points throughout the movie, and, and it's one of the visual cues that the Coen brothers uh, use in this movie that is um, really uh, kind of delicious to me. I, I really enjoy uh, how subtle they are. They're, they're, sometimes they're not as subtle. Sometimes they're really... Um, stylistically uh, ambitious. Uh, but everything is very, very sort of subdued and casual about Fargo. It's, and so it doesn't leap out at you, that banister, but it, it, uh, it's a good thing to note. Um, I'll try to point it out when it, when it uh, appears later. The little wordplay there, Harvey Presnell is the actor playing Wade. Um, the little bit of wordplay there about Lot... Uh, the word lot and a lot, parking lot, that never gets old with me. I always laugh. I guess I didn't laugh now because I was too busy talking. The scene ends, of course, with um, Wade telling Jerry that Gene and Scotty never have to worry, purposefully and, and uh, pointedly uh, leaving out his son-in-law, Jerry. So you have a sense of what that relationship is like and... and um, and also the personal how how the personalities of the people in the relationship really drive the drama of uh, what's happening and and uh, and the gulf between them. It seems like a happy family, but obviously there's some stuff going on. So much of this movie happens in cars and in on and on the telephone. Now here we have this interior scene with Buscemi and Stormar. Well, it's a short little scene. It's I think that's just, you know, setting up that there's a fundamental conflict between these two characters that that they're they're sort of incompatible. And of course, the conflict between them and the smart alekiness of Buscemi later on is going to lead to some very violent uh things that happen. In fact, I, almost all the violence in the movie uh, is the fault of the Buscemi character, Carl Showalter. I read in, uh, I think it was Film Comment, but this was years ago, it was a, one of the movie magazines, that this little um, scene here with this, um, and, and I think this scene with these people, with the, their coats piled in their lap, and these, these it, it, 
Jerry's trying to scam them. It, it's uh, setting up Jerry's mendacity or, or, re- or, or reminding us or, uh, that how dishonest he is and how desperate he is, you know, with this true coat scam. Now, he even lies right here. He says he's going to ask his boss something, but watch what he tells the boss here. Notice the composition. Jerry coming from behind, soliciting, asking for something at the mercy of this man who's his boss. Notice what the boss is doing. Drinking and eating, chomping on that buffalo burger, whatever the hell it is, watching a hockey game. Wade didn't even turn around, but his boss turns around. He doesn't turn around to acknowledge Jerry in a positive way. He turns around to to uh, uh, sort of diminish him and uh, admonish him. Um, and now when this man gets upset here, what a mug on William H. Macy. I, I mean, very, I mean... It, very few actors have a face like that. I mean, he does so much with his just the muscles in his face in this movie. I mean, when he frowns here, it's a real, real frown. But but you have the sense that he's almost pretending to look more ashamed than he might be, uh, the way he looks up there. When that guy uh, lets out the, in many ways, there's a movie about place. So when that guy uh, lets out the the f word, right? He says uh, a fucking liar. Uh, we get the sense, and the way the wife reacts, we have the sense that you know. This is a community where even a swear word is is seen as beyond the pale, and so the the violence that's going to come later is all the more maybe all the more shocking. This little Johnny uh, Carson Tonight Show thing with the hookers who who will meet later. Uh, well, I'll say something about that in a sec. But again, Gene in the background. Uh, notice the composition here. Gene is in the background cooking furiously. Um, Scotty is facing away from her, uh, Jean being Jerry's wife, of course, um, wearing that, uh, sweater that will, she'll be wearing and, and later, uh, when she's kidnapped, um, notice Scotty, Scotty's disinterested, uh, facing away. It's the same composition that we had with Jerry, uh, approaching his boss and approaching Wade. And what was she doing? She was asking him to do better at school and, um, he turns all the way around. Uh, and now, again, we have the F word and the reaction of people who live in this part, uh, in this community, to the F word. Uh, it's, it's Jerry on the phone here. Um, if he would just stay off the phone, his life would not be so complicated, but uh, so much of what uh, what gets uh, hairy in this movie is uh, uh, on the phone. In every scene, William H. Macy's character, uh, or I should say in almost every scene, things get worse for him in some way. This scene right here with Shep, where we're, we're having the Shep character set up for us, uh, that might be an exception. Uh, I don't know that things get worse for him here. Or maybe you can say that because we find out that, as I said before, um, Buscemi was not uh, vouched for. Shep vouched for, and who did Shep vouch for? He vouched for uh, Gare Grisrud. He vouched for the Stormar character. He vouched for the character who is a lot like him. Uh, stoic, quiet, um, seems to resent the idea that he has to speak at all. Um, 
there's a lot of parallel structuring uh, in this movie, uh, sort of like with the composition with Jerry coming from from behind. Um, and, and there's also a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but I mean, there's a few parallel characters, I think. Uh, obviously, Shep and Stormar. And I would say uh, the two families, the Lundegaards and the Gundersons. It's a, the secondhand smoke crack that Buscemi makes there is funny because later he'll he'll tell someone to smoke a peace pipe in in that sort of um, sort of um, ethnically kind of insensitive um, remark he makes to Shep as he's getting his ass kicked. He's trying to make conversation with Stormar, and this seems to be a repeat of the scene before. I mean, it's just telling us this. It's telling us they're on their way to to do commit this act. Uh, but it's telling us what we, what we were told before, that there's a conflict here. It's, it's also doing something else. It's, it's establishing the smart aleckiness of Buscemi and the way that his ability to run his mouth, and, and also later we'll see his ability to make poor decisions, but his ability to run his mouth, his ability to annoy people, his ability to... Um, not be like Gare Grisrud, uh, his partner there. Um, you know, we wonder how these two were ever paired together. Uh, sort of like Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre, you know, who, who, who saw that potential? Um, but in fact, uh, comedically it's, they work very well. Um, he says two can play at that game here. He's going to, it, it His, uh, the Buscemi's um, mouth is going to, as I said, get them in trouble. And it's the personality qualities of Gare Grisrud that get them out of trouble, get them out of jams. Uh, I'll, I'll say more about that uh, when, it, when it comes up. But it's important to realize that those two characters, as we watch Jerry here uh, on the phone with Riley... Ifenbach, I believe, is the GMAC loan officer who Jerry has embezzled or, or stolen this money from the dealership, and it's only a matter of time before it gets caught. He's probably going to pay it back with a ransom, or he's planning something to do. The film language here is pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, those vertical blinds are prison bars, right? What sort of um, what I enjoy even more is is the way the camera imperceptibly almost pushes in as the conversation gets more tense uh, and as this Riley Ifenbach from GMAC gets more agitated with Jerry. And it's pretty clear from what Jerry's saying and, and the excuses he's making that he is trying to buy time. He is, he is um, engaged in malfeasance, as Marge Gunderson will say later. That's a nice 1980s television there that Jean is watching. I love that she's knitting what she appears to be wearing, kind of, um, or something along the lines of what she appears to be, appears to be wearing. The actress here is uh, Kristen Rudrud. I, I pronounced her name, her last name wrong there. It's R-U-D-R-U-D -R -U -D is the last name, but... Um, I mean, she doesn't have a whole lot of lines, 
But um, it's important that we saw her sort of um, beaming when Jerry came home. And, and, you know, she was set up as kind of a nice person for us. We have the sense that she's just, she doesn't deserve this. Um, The kidnappers, they, uh, this is a a really nicely um, edited um, kidnapping sequence here. Okay, so everybody's going up the staircase. Now, you notice the staircase. This shot here, uh, well, this sequence of shots, um, that is, uh, again, very nicely edited. I think, uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, horror movie um, um, nod going on here with the Coen brothers. I, uh, you know, they're highly conscious of cinematic tropes and um we always wonder in horror movies why the fuck jamie lee curtis is running upstairs when she should just leave the house why is she trapping herself upstairs when michael myers is coming up well then you've got no you you've got no suspense if she leaves the house i mean if people acted logically in horror movies you got i mean that's hitchcock said something like that i think the crowbar coming through the door a moment ago is sort of a nod to the shining i think as well I want to. I, I, pro, I will have something to say about um, this Peter Stormare's character and where I the cinematic tropes I think are operating uh, with uh, the Coen Brothers are purposely using with a character like him. Um, maybe during the chase scene, I'll say that we see the curtain come off the rod there. The word he was saying is uh, in the screenplay, it says unguent, uh, which is another word for ointment or salve. It's funny that someone who dishes out cruelty so casually would want to take care of his bite before moving on with what he's doing here. The way he pokes her there always gets a laugh at every screening I've ever been to of Fargo. Stan Grossman and Wade... Stan Grossman kind of uh, wades consigliere. We're never told exactly who he is or what he does, but we, we just get that sense, we, right? We conclude that just from the way this meeting and other meetings will go down between these three, this trio of characters. Um, the contrast between Wade's office and Jerry's office is pretty obvious. They don't invite Jerry to sit down, and so he sits perched on the chair there, on the arm of that armchair. So he's spatially, or, or in, the, in the space of the room, he's at literally taller than these other two men. Um, but he doesn't seem bigger, right? He's diminished by what they are saying about him. Those cowboy statues, those bucking statues behind Wade and the painting and, the, you know, the mahogany of the wood. I don't know if it's mahogany, but it all suggests the, what, uh, what he is, which is a, a, a very virile go-getter, uh, you know, um, uh, a very a man's man and uh, the opposite of Jerry, a man who um, controls other men, unlike Jerry. Uh, Again, uh, the pattern with Jerry is that in every scene almost, he's asking someone for something else and and usually not getting it, as in this scene. Now, they're going to mock him here in a moment for asking uh, or for assuming that he's just going to be given this money instead of a finder's fee. And the way they, I think it happened a moment ago there, uh, 
the line, we're not a bank, kind of stings um, for Jerry. The way they giggle at him, he wants us to put up all the money and, and he collects when it pays off, Wade says to Stan. And then he, he rolls his eyes. The way they, they laugh at him there is um, suggests that they don't have any real re- respect for him. Uh, as does the uh, way they get sidetracked with where does this guy Bill Deal work? Is he at North Star Bank or is he at Midwest Federal? And they, they sort of get momentarily sidetracked, suggesting that, uh, that it's possible for them to get sidetracked in, in Jerry's presence because they don't have any regard for him, right? Um, also, uh, the scene passed. Now, I'll, I'll try to not uh, talk. I'll try to talk about what's on the screen and not, you know, after it's passed. But I just... In the way uh, editing works and transitioning, and in the way staging and set design works, you notice that uh, the that bright whiteness outside uh, the windows of Wade's office, it it, it uh, sets up the transition that we just got with that high angle shot of Jerry walking out alone. He's literally been you know put out in the cold by these two men who have treated him coldly when he thought they wouldn't. Um, so it's it's a nice well the the entire use of uh the snowy landscape is so um enjoyable uh in Fargo the way uh, he threw that tantrum there Macy it's an extraordinary performance by Macy i i I've, you know it, it led to some typecasting for him um but in most of the roles he was typecast in he was um he's very good in in my in my view but um that tantrum he just threw there throwing the ice scraper ice scrapers will play a role of their own in this movie but um he'll do that again with a desk pad later on and it's sort of unconvincing right when when a, a very manly man with big muscles gets enraged we we it's sort of scary but it's not scary when he does it now this is what i was talking about with um macy sort of doing everything with his face. Um, He walked in that front door thinking that he was going to act out, you know, being shocked. And he'll say no rough, he'll say later that he, I thought we said no rough stuff. He sees the shower curtain and thinks maybe that she was taken out naked. He sees all of this broken stuff, the window, the crowbar, and it looks pretty nasty. And so he's alarmed by it. Okay, now this is a shot that I... Uh, referenced earlier. The banister and the stairs occupy the right-hand side of the screen as Jerry is rehearsing what uh, this this um, phony phone call, basically, that he's going to make, pretending that he's surprised that his wife's been kidnapped. He's calling Wade to report her kidnapping. But that, that banister and that, that staircase on the side of the screen there are literally crowding him in the frame, right? He has less space to to exist or breathe in in the in the frame uh, that we're looking at on screen because of that staircase. That staircase is a, a again a visual cue, and it becomes a symbol of this crime he's committed, this betrayal of his wife, uh, the, what happened on that staircase, and 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 so the presence of that staircase in the frame when the, in the dinner scene earlier earlier. Um, uh, it, the, it was, uh, slanting across the screen and it was slanting nearest to where Jerry was sitting. I mean, these are little things that, you know, you can enjoy the movie perfectly fine and not 
think about them, but I think it's, I think it enriches, uh, the experience and it's certainly uh, the appreciation of, um, directors who are as deliberate and careful as the Coens are. And once again, I love Fargo because all of this shit is just so seamless. Well, this chase sequence I want to say a lot about, so... And uh, maybe I'll go into the Stormar character uh, last. Uh, the first thing... People uh, sometimes, uh, even sometimes people who are real movie lovers... Uh, I say this because I have a friend who says, you know, said, you know, said to me once, you know, I... I have to be honest, I, I say I liked the cinematography in this or that movie, and I don't even know what cinematography is, he said. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Um, it's, well, forget what cinematography is. I, maybe this is a better way of illustrating it. L the way this scene is lit, um, a moment ago we had the silhouette of the trooper in his car before he got out. The way that shaft of light is coming across Buscemi's face there. The way it's pitch black outside. And uh, we have only pretty much a flashlight on the interior of the car. Um, but, you know, it's pit we have the um, feeling, you know, the scene uh, is telling us that it's really dark out. You see that pitch blackness out there. And yet... And we have the feeling of darkness in the cab of the car, and yet we can see everything clearly. I mean, the way uh, uh, the shadows uh, are just um, uh, slathered on the side of, of um, Stormar's face there. Uh, so that's the thing one about this scene for me is just how how beautiful it is. And, and so and so cinematography is basically the skill set that it takes to create these kinds of looks um, and to to know how to create them uh, so that uh, it doesn't matter what it looks like on set, it matters what it looks like on camera. The attempt at bribery is so stupid because... And so, you know, we have a series of examples of Buscemi's bad judgment here. This is nicely edited, too. We have the reaction shot of Stormar to see that he has tensed up. And so when we see this coming, we, we had a feeling that it was going to come. We had this sinking feeling that something like that was going to happen. Now, he's there's something to notice here. Stormar has just shot this human being. There's not a, as we look at this close-up, there's not a muscle in his face that's tensed. Now, compare it to Buscemi's face, right? He's, he's, um, it looks like he's about to vomit. Whoa, daddy, he says right now. Um, he looks like he's, he's going to be sick, and Stormar has not uh, a muscle in his face tensed, the cigarette still gingerly dangling from the mouth. What just happened here in the abstract, uh, if that makes any sense, is Buscemi's foolishness, Buscemi's stupidity, Buscemi's uh, unjustified arrogance um, and bad judgment has got them into a jam. And what got them out of the jam was the 
abject cruelty and disregard for any uh, sense of decency <laughs> that uh, Stormar has. Um, so, you know, Buscemi's a bad guy, but um, or, or Buscemi does bad things. Stormar is a barely a human being. He's so he's so gnarly. Uh, he's he's a he. It, it's funny in the Big Lebowski, another Coen Brothers movie. He will play a nihilist, <laughs> but this is the movie where he really shows that he believes nothing. Uh, this is really nice here as these these other um, motorists pass and they look at the car and Stormar looks at them and it's clear to us, the audience, that everybody sees everybody's face. When people mention what their famous uh, or what their favorite chase scenes are from movies, they never mention Fargo. And as a set piece, this is to me, pretty exciting, uh, this little chase scene we have here. I think it's better than a lot of movies. I mean, uh, I mean, there are some really great chase scenes. The, the French Connection, Tulane Blacktop, yeah, yeah. But all those chase scenes have scenery, you know. The whole point in the French Connection chase scene is that there's shit going by. Buildings, and you know, you're going underneath things. Um, and when those, ha but this is pitch black, and so it makes it all the more eerie when those headlights disappear, as they just did. And you saw the reaction shot of the Stormar character, right? You saw that reaction shot. Even he was creeped out by it. That's how dark it was on that road. The roadside murder of the trooper, and it kind of echoes uh, another Coen Brothers, their first movie, uh, uh, Blood Simple, where you have a roadside uh, uh, murder. But yeah, I, I think that chase scene is extraordinary. There's, you have the sense of all you have is those headlights in front of up ahead and the road going by and everything else is black. Uh, now look at the compositions here. You have someone running away in the snow and that's a kill shot, right? Uh, he was aiming for the body. He was aiming for the, the heart and lungs area. That's a kill shot. He, he was intending to kill that person. That composition will repeat at the end of the movie when Marge apprehends Stormar. We see that that's a maybe a teenage, a, a young woman in the car who's very frightened, and Stormar has no, doesn't think twice about shooting her. Uh, he either shot her in the face or the, uh, or the front of the body. Again, a kill shot. Uh, when Marge shoots Stormar uh, later on, it won't be a kill shot. And speaking of subtlety, I mean, here's a very, you know, a very modest uh, introduction to the the ducks and the facts that the fact that Norm Gunderson, played by uh, a really good actor that I've seen in a lot of movies that I like, uh, John Carroll Lynch, uh, we are sort of being introduced just visually there to the fact that someone here is a painter who's painting these ducks. Parallel structuring, um, Marge. Asleep, sound asleep, sleeping the sleep of the just, as they say. Um, she's awoken by the phone. Her husband doesn't really rustle at that because when your spouse is a police chief, you're probably used to that. She answers it and his arm drapes over. Notice that um, he doesn't have his wedding ring on. 
Later on, this scene will replay, only it'll be a different person calling. And he'll be wearing the wedding band. It has to do with who's calling, and I'll, I'll uh, try to remember to point that out. At this point, you kind of see that Marge is pregnant. It isn't until she gets up, and, it, and really until you see her in that police uniform in the kitchen, that you really, it really registers that she's pregnant. The whole thing with the eggs, I'll fix you some eggs. You know, I, I, I think it's very important to the kind of story that the Coens are telling here, that we understand right away that this is not just a loving um, marriage, but that they got each other's back, right? Uh, unlike um, Jerry Lundegaard, who did not have his wife's back. These, this, is a, this is a family who, here who, who looks you know, just as normal as uh, all the families look normal on the outside. But this is one where it's really genuine. They, you know, this is a genuine affection here. Here's a sequence that all plays in one shot. Um, she goes out to the car, st tries to start it, it won't start, realizes it needs a jump, and we have that natural split screen that the wall creates where we can watch Norm continuing to eat while she goes out there and does that. Now, uh, a shitty movie maker might have chopped this all up in editing. You know, you'd have a close-up of the key as it turns the ignition, and you'd have her face reacting to it, and the cones just play it all in one shot and it creates this mini drama this mini little bit of suspense where we don't know why she's coming back in the house why is she coming back in the house and she and it's just funny that her police car needs a jump lets you know in case we haven't noticed how unbelievably cold this area of the country gets uh, reinforced by Lou uh, her deputy handing Marge this this coffee, referring to it as a warm up. Watch the way she she trips here, or she slides down in the snow and looks back. It's one of a few things that happened right when we're introduced to Marge um, that really endear us to her. We like her in a way that is almost involuntary. Um, you don't have to think about liking her. She's so damn nice. She's so attractive in every way. And the way she just glared back, you know, humorously at Lou when her boot slid too far into the snow is endearing as hell. Um, we uh, are learning things about her here. She's going to piece this together. You know, she's going to synthesize all the evidence that's present here. So you know, she's articulating it right here, what probably happened. The body over her shoulder. Um, so what, in the abstract, what do we learn here? Her intelligence, her, her quickness, and her sense of humor. Her sense of humor is big. Um, this little humor moment where she leans over and she, her deputy Lou thinks, what do you see? You know, he figures she sees another clue or something. And she says, no, it's just morning sickness. In that one little sequence there, that little sequence, we have her whole character, right? It sums her up. Uh, she has to balance these two identities, a wife, a soon-to-be mother, a, a, a pregnant woman who's seven months along and has to uh, literally carry the weight of that around, uh, and a damn good police officer, chief police officer. 
Um, the, the way her deputies, there's a couple of different actors who play deputies to her, or um, uh, notice the way they're cast. Um, I, w I don't want to say they're cast as softies, but they didn't cast Lou Ferrigno, right? They cast these sort of harmless-looking guys, these guys who look like they should be... Um, you know, driving ed instructors at a high school. You know, they're just really nice-looking fellas. The character of Marge, it's sort of an inversion of, uh, I think I mentioned Hitchcock's Psycho before. He kills off his star, surprisingly, uh, halfway through the movie or around it. And um, here we're meeting the star of the movie a good ways into the movie. Uh Marge is an inversion of every cinematic, uh, the way movies have trained us to, ex uh, our expectations of what cop characters, the cops who solve murders in movies, think about them. What are they like? Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, etc. Marge is a complete inversion of that. Um, she's the opposite. Uh, notice what she's doing here. Now, um, Lou has just made this idiotic mistake of he didn't realize that DLR means dealer plates. Um, and what does she do? Does she shame him? Does she say, you know, imagine a Bruce Willis character playing a cop in a movie, or the Denzel Washington character from Training Day, my goodness. You know, he would be breaking the other cop's balls for hours in the squad car about that mistake. Marge just shakes it off as, and, and makes light of it and doesn't, doesn't shame him, as I said, but just, just make, just, she has this sense of humor and this approach to police work that is the same way she approaches everything. She seems to be someone who believes that you can be a good person at all times, no matter what, or at least try to be. Um, if there's one criticism you could make of her character and the way it's written, it's that she's too perfect. This trio of... Uh, uh, this diner scene, there's a couple things about it. Um, there's a moment of realism coming up when Wade storms off that I really love because it's exactly the way a man like him would storm off. Here we see um, Stan Grossman. Throughout the movie, a couple different times, people will appeal to Stan Grossman's opinion uh, as if to validate their own. Stan Grossman thinks, you know, X, Y, and Z, and, and we're supposed to gather that that means something th something to these people. That you know, Stan's He's sort of like... He really is the consigliere. He's he's the analyst. He's, he's you know the advice giver. The he, and and we have the sense that you know, I mean he's in on this kidnapping situation. You know, despite you know only working for Wade. Now this waitress here and the way Jerry looks back here, watch, and he sees that Stan and Wade have are not looking basically as he's interacting with this waitress, and then he says, "How are you doing?" Uh, in the way he does, and it's this, and she smiles the way she probably smiles at all the customers, but it's this little moment of flirtation, of really pathetic, creepy uh, flirtation, but it, you know, you watch the movie a few times and you think, well, this is suggestive maybe of, um, you know, the personal, quote-unquote, personal problems that caused Jerry's financial situation, uh, that caused him to, you know, could it be blackmail? Is he some kind of womanizer that was cheating, you know? Um, uh, is he, uh, you know, 
that kind of guy. We never find out. But we have a hint like that there, I think. Again, another scene with Jerry asking for something. He's soliciting. He's. Uh, this is a particularly um, disgusting uh, act of cowardice that he's engaging in here. His young son is visibly distraught at uh, his mother's abduction. He is now, um, he even tells the kid, uh, as he just said, we're making sure this gets handled right, which is far from the truth. Um, he is instructing his son to lie uh, a couple times here. And the son has his own good you know, recommendation that we should go to the cops. And um, Jerry is uh, instructing him to help him basically, uh, unwittingly, albeit unwittingly, um, succeed in this scheme. Um, Scotty's room has the accoutrements of both hockey and accordion. And I don't think that it's just a quirky thing. You know, the Coen brothers, sometimes people say, oh yeah, they have those funny character quirks, you know, and as if it's just I don't think it's just in another movie or with another filmmaker. I think it would be just funny. It's not just funny. It's that I think they do these things for reasons. I think the fact that you have th these two disparate things that the kid is into hockey and accordions. What does that suggest? Well, to me, that suggests that this is a kid who is special. Um, you know, he's he he's unique. He's a lovable kid who's probably loved by the people in his family. So he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve the pain he's in. He doesn't deserve the to have his mother going through what we're seeing her go through now. And it just makes Jerry Lundegaard, Macy's character, all the more disgusting to us. Uh, I don't think we, you know, when we watch a movie, I don't think we, I don't think we, all those gears are turning, you know, we're, we're not thinking of those things consciously, but I think they have an effect on the way we perceive the whole of the narrative. So Buscemi, um, mocking the suffering that Gene is going through there is also attended by, uh, his, uh, the Stormar character who has no reaction. Um, she comes to their lunch date. Now they, they, uh, this is like a thing that the Lundegar or the, uh, Gundersons do as a married couple. They, they dine together. He, she, he's going ice fishing. So she brings him these worms, these earthworms and night crawlers, as she says. And, um, he brings her Arby's so they're sweetly in love. He, you know, they, they eat fast food like two teenagers, right? They're like two teenagers in love. We're, I mean, we're supposed to, I think we're supposed to get that impression. And the way she encourages him there, you really think so. I mean, there's a way she is, um, um, almost, uh, mothering him, um, and then we have Lou entering with this, um, information to move the plot forward regarding the kidnappers. So this tells us that Marge is going to be sort of on their tail. Uh, she's, she's, uh, 
a few steps behind them. The hookers here, in uh, w one of the more memorable scenes, or one of the ones people tend to remember about Fargo, that's Melissa Peterson on the right. She, uh, I've seen, I've seen her in on, um, a lot of television, and she's pretty funny. And then on the left there is a woman named uh, Lisa Kokerno. Uh, she was the dialect coach for some of the actors on the on the film. And so it makes sense then that she sort of nails this this regional dialect. Um, you know what I was saying before about something. It's not just comic relief. Um, it's not just funny in most Coen Brothers movies. It is, it is um, being used for something uh, even, um, even to to give us information about the characters. And I and I don't think this is just for laughs. It's obviously we're moving the plot forward. She she's learning more information about these kidnappers. Um, but I think that scene's about Marge. It's one of a few scenes that I, I read as really being learning about her character. And we're, what we're really watching there is the way she does police work, uh, which, as I say, is, is the way she does anything. I mean, um, she smiles a lot. When was the last time, uh, I mean, I live in a big city. When, when was the last time a police officer smiled at you and smiled the way she smiles? I mean, um, it's an inversion. It is a, it is a, the exact opposite of what you'd expect. We can see her breath coming out of the hood. I don't know if they put that in with CGI or what. Now this transition is interesting for me. Uh, I apologize for the overuse of the word interesting. What I really mean is noteworthy, I guess. Um, interesting just seems to roll off the tongue. The cut that we had there, now we think with a static on the Busem, the TV Busemi was trying. I mean, think about just the word static. They're static at their hideout, you know. Um, when he, when we have that beetle coming on the screen, uh, we think that he's zeroed in on a channel. But really, it's in the Gunderson home where they're dozing and Marge is watching this nature documentary. So we go from one domestic setting, this cabin that the kidnappers are holed up in, to another very different domestic setting through this connection of a TV having static on it and a TV that's working fine. I don't read very much into the, the nature documentary or the, the, the fact that it was a beetle, you know, I don't, in that, I don't think that's the point of the, uh, the, uh, flourish of uh, filmmaking that we have there. We are establishing as she, uh, in, the payoff of that uh, parallel scene that uh, one of the parallel scenes again she's being awoken uh, we have the establishing of the Mike Yanagita character um, and when that scene pops up I'll I'll give you the standard um, reading of it that uh, most people subscribe to and then I've, I've got some my own sort of quirks about it as Norm's hand drapes over um, we see that he is now, unlike the other time, he is wearing his wedding band. That's another good example of something that you might not notice watching the movie just uh, in a theater or something, but um, re-watching re it, 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 you notice it. And, and of course, 
Yanagita is this person they both went to high school with. He is calling Marge late at night saying they should get together. He saw her on TV. And so the wedding band coming into the frame is a a visual reminder of how happy she is with Norm. Again, Jerry is uh, doing the soliciting. He's He is, you know, despite being the one who's the salesman, this other man who is bigger and sort of more manly looking than he uh, seems to be the one in control. <laughs> Speaking of the stupid things that the Buscemi character does, phoning the... Um, the dealership where Jerry works is at the top of the list. That'll be one of the ways the phone records will be one of the ways that Marge is able to connect these people. Remember that she's investigating a triple homicide, the state trooper and those two kids on the highway. She's, she doesn't know anything about a kidnapping or why those people were killed. He says, you asked you ask those three people in Brainerd. So he's basically acknowledging to involvement in the Brainerd murders over the phone. Uh, this this movie is set in 1987. Like, uh, I believe all the Coen Brothers movies are still set in the past, if, even if it's not the, the very distant past. Uh, I mean, he's saying blood has, he's just said, blood has been shed. Um, you know, he's, what I mean is this happened in the mid 1980s. They had wiretapping then they had the ability to scan phone records. I mean, it's, it's astonishing what he's saying. Uh, astonishingly stupid. And then on top of that call, we get Riley Ephenbach, the loan officer with, uh, less patience this time, as he says, and, um, Jerry is being told that he's getting this legal action uh, or initiated uh, because of the $275,000 he's apparently stolen. Now here's the desk pad uh, tantrum. What makes it look even more pathetic and ridiculous is the way it's in wide shot. I oh I I never talked about the Stormar character. Next time he comes on screen, I'll have to uh, how that character might be uh, functioning. That's I think that's a very uh, fun thing to talk about. People are really interested in what it's a good it it just it's a, if you're a filmmaker you know maybe that's a good way to start a scene to make sure that the audience is really interested. Uh, start with a buffet and and a close up of what the person is choosing and not choose. People are really interested in what someone else would choose and not choose from a buffet, you know. And again, they're dining together. Now her other deputy is going to come in and, and present her with information um, about this time about Shep. As he does that, I'll just say that uh, a moment ago there, Oh, and, and the fact that he, the deputy knows that Norm was supposed to go ice fishing, it, you know, the, how close-knit this community is, I think, is, is um, something that we can take from that. When he walks in, Marge offers him some of her fricassee, or he asks her how the fricassee is, and she offers it. I mean, it's just, it's very, again, a very parental thing. Um, the fact that they're eating at this kind of quaint buffet, um, 
it all suggests how modest they are and how unassuming. Now, see that look Norm just gave her when she says she's traveling to the Twin Cities? That uh, That's a little bit of suspicion. Maybe he heard that phone call when Yanagita called while he was half asleep. Again, a sort of cool transition there where we um, they were chewing uh, when Norm looked at her. Uh, and then we went to that close-up there of uh, Stan Grossman chewing. We have that high, th th this high-angle shot right here of them, the three of them, sort of powwowing at the kitchen table there. Um, and this, in this scene, Jerry is again the weakling. He is. Uh, quickly losing control of this kidnapping situation. He thought he'd be able to handle it, and Wade basically... And that's the line that stings. You're not selling me a car, it's my show. And then the, the way Stan Grossman uses we there, it's, uh, you know, the we is Stan and Wade. It's not Wade and Jerry, who are actually family. It is... It is a business before family with Wade, or a business approach to uh, uh, to any matter, as he just explained. As we watch Marge on the phone here, um, uh, trying to uh, get information from another cop in another jurisdiction uh, about Shep, um, we had a moment to go that that hotel those hotel clerks lined up and. and I thought that, you know, that's a very observant little thing, um, but I think it's great. And the fact that there's nobody, seems to be nobody behind Marge walking by in this in this Radisson Hotel. Well, there's all the snow out. It's the middle of winter. It's this area of the country, this upper Midwest area of the country that gets very cold. Nobody's vacationing here to the Radisson at this time of year. Not even for the, you know, they don't even plan very many conventions at, place, at, at places and times like this. So... All those hotel clerks were just kind of lined up, and it's sort of like when you go to the bank to a bank teller, and there's nobody in line. You have to walk through the ropes awkwardly, and you have to choose which teller to go to. And you and Marge, as Marge did there, he, you sort of go to the one that is uh, smiles at you the widest or makes the most deliberate eye contact. But it's this subtlety of human interaction. It's this why I say it's, it's observant. It's this example of um, human behavior that is means nothing to the plot, uh, really, but is just really fleshes out. It's why, you know, I go back and forth. Uh, is this a movie about place? Is this a movie? Is this more of a, as they say, a character study? Or is the question itself flawed the either or construction that I have there you know uh, I've seen this movie over two dozen times probably and uh, fuck if I know I know I'm not supposed to say that <laughs> thank you I'm supposed to know things well here I know this uh, parking lot attendants do not fare well in this movie both of them die uh, but notice here, Buscemi has just picked up this money at this parking lot, uh, that he's driving a car 
and ha- has this money, all of which is pursuant to this, this um, you know, interlocking matrix of illegal activity, uh, you would think that he'd have a hat and sunglasses on. You would think that he would try to be inconspicuous. You, a, a smart person would be very nice to this guy, but, but brief to this parking lot attendant. He wouldn't complain over the $4 when he's just picked up tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and yet Buscemi does all that. You know, he makes a scene and he makes sure that that parking lot attendant's going to remember his face. And who could forget it? It's funny looking, as we heard from the hookers, and as we'll hear paid off again later. Uh, it's funny looking. Now, this scene with Shep. And uh, just Marge's wardrobe here. Uh, we haven't even, I haven't even uh, gone into Fran McDormand's uh, just inspired performance here. Um, but at any rate, the sweater is sort of that she's wearing almost under understates the fact that she's a cop, right? Uh, as does her hairdo. But notice the way she's interacting with Shep here. Imagine, uh, to go back to that example of the way police who solve murders in movies are often cast, think of Bruce Willis cast uh, as a cop who was questioning someone like Shep. He'd have him up against the wall trying to, to beat the confession out of him. Um... Marge uses sarcasm and playfulness and empathy. She uses empathy. She says, now I've seen some prior, you know, she sounds like a high school guidance counselor talking to a troubled kid. You know, I saw some rough stuff on your record, but nothing like a homicide. Um, Ditto what we're looking at here as Macy, uh, it's too bad these two don't have more scenes together. As Macy does a good job of act, a, a good piece of acting here, he is acting like a man who is trying to who is trying to seem calm despite being extremely nervous and extremely stressed out. Um, But I say ditto with this scene because Marge interacts with him the same way. Um, She uses, this will be the first of two interviews she has with him, but uh, in this first one she uses small talk. They're making this Babe the Blue Ox Brainerd small talk here. And this is how people interact here, even the police, Marge. Um, again, that, uh, Fran McDormand's smile, um, she smiles big. She makes this small talk with Jerry Lundegaard. Um, she takes him at his word. That's going to be key. She takes him at his word here because she has no idea of the kidnapping. Remember, she's investigating a triple homicide. Um, she makes that little cute remark about his paperwork. So we get this. So she's paying attention to what's on his desk and stuff. She's she's um, noting things, but but um, she takes him at at his word and leaves. But the um, the way she interacts with people when she's questioning them as a, as a police officer is um, I'm I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just watching um. Macy's mug here, uh, his face on, uh, as he's on the phone, it's, uh, really, uh, quite, uh, quite something what he does with his face. All right, the, uh, the Mike Yanagita sequence. Now, first of all, uh, I'll give you the standard reading of it. The actor here is Steve Park. Um, watch his eyes. 
as he hugs Marge, his eyes roll back uh, in ecstasy. Um, I first saw this guy on In Living Color, the old uh, Wayans Brothers comedy show. He was in A Serious Man, too, the other, another Coen Brothers movie, uh, that time playing the father of a cheating student of Larry Gopnik's. Uh, here, this Yanagita character, well, here's the standard, uh, or the, the standard way um, critics have read the, screen, the, uh, the scene. Um, March has just interviewed Jerry and taken his word for everything, not really been as suspicious as she should be. Maybe that's a flaw on her part. Maybe she's just too damn nice for, for uh, the situation there. So while she's in town, she figures she'll meet with this guy from her past, Yanagita, um, get to catch up. And she'll find out later after this scene has gone by and the awkwardness of the scene has gone by. Uh, she'll find out in a few scenes uh, from another person that um, everything Yanagita is telling her here is a lie as he sidles her in, in the si on the other side of the booth. Uh, and now he's getting up, crossing back over. Boy, she behaved exactly like anybody would want their spouse to behave uh, in such a situation. She doesn't shame him, once again. Um, but anyway, uh, the Yanagita character, um, she'll discover that everything he's telling her is fraudulent. That he is, he is, he has this serious man's suit on, if you will, and he is trying to make her think, uh, you know, everything he's saying is a lie. He's really a mentally ill person who was actually stalking the person who he, whom he claimed to be married to and who he said is dead. Um, and when Marge discovers that, she decides to go back and interview Jerry a second time and this time be a little more, uh, to, to, to push back and to really, um, be a little more, uh, sharp with him because she suspects that even serious men who project success as the way Yanagita is doing, even, uh, I almost said what, um, the Big Lebowski said in the Big Lebowski, uh, serious men also cry. Serious men also lie, uh, and mislead and things aren't always what they seem. So that's the standard reading. But like the, what I have in addition to it, um, as we watch uh, in a moment here, you'll see Fran McDormand sipping her Diet Coke. And um, it, I didn't know there was a way you could sip Coke, Diet diet Coke, uh, sip it defensively. But she's just shown it to us. <laughs> she's showing it to us right now, yeah. Um, it's an awkward situation for her. And people laugh at this scene. Um, when Yanagita breaks down, and by the way, I don't accept the idea that they're poking fun at Asian people. If anything, they are, they are, um, shattering stereotypes about Asian people. Uh, I think people have a problem, some people have a problem with the fact that he's made, he's made to look like a fool, but I don't, I don't, I just don't think that's the, that's what the Coen brothers are into, that kind of stuff. But anyway, I see that scene in addition to the standard reading of it. I see it as kind of a, like the interview with the hookers. It's about Marge. It's about, um, we learn a little bit about her past and we see how she interacts 
we see her loyalty to her husband, where the parallel couple of the Lundegaards, uh, there's no loyalty there. You know, he, he had her kidnapped. Uh, but, I, you know, it's about what we learn about Marge there, as Steve Buscemi here again gets into trouble by using euphemism and, and trying to be uh, using suggestive language um, uh, and getting other people to read into the line, read between the lines. You know, he told the cop, we can, quote unquote, take care of this here in Brainerd as he flashes him that $50 bill trying to bribe him. Here he tells this uh, rather bored looking hooker, uh Hey, we in and you know a little of the old in and out, um, and he's a, he's ignored by the waiter. Um, you know that that use of euphemism is a character uh, uh, a character quality that he has that he uses. Um, I didn't even mention it, but I, I the biggest laugh in the movie the last few times if I I've seen it is when he tells the parking lot attendant who's charging him the four dollars. He tells him, these are the limits of your life, man. Uh, <laughs> so ironic, uh, somebody like this, these are the limits of your life, you know, as uh, this rather brutal beating scene. Um, Shep will even kick this hooker in the ass as she leaves. And this guy he uh, thrashes about the hallway is pretty pretty big, and Shep just tosses him around. So we have this the sense that there are bad people and then they're really bad people there are tough guys and then there are sheps right it's this this level of there are there are people who are pretty good and then there are good people like marge you know it's these these so almost um dante like levels of goodness and badness Th those are flawed words i know but uh, he calls him a weasel which exactly what that is and beats him with this belt I mean, um, some of the plot points in Fargo, you know, I've said it's a, it's a great movie, but some of the plot points are kind of, um, you don't always, uh, are unclear to some people. Shep is upset because um, they weren't careful enough doing, the kidnappers weren't careful enough, and now he's been questioned by the police as a, you know, person of interest, I guess, in all this, and he... Um, And he hadn't vouched for Buscemi. Right here, as Wade is walking out, you see the staircase is literally between Jerry and Wade, right? It is this, it is on, again, on the right side of the screen as Jerry's on the left as he watches Wade leave there. But at one point when they were walking, when Wade was walking out, it was between them. It was this gulf between them. Um, there's a, in terms of... Um, suspense filmmaking. I like the way information is presented here uh, coming up or given to the audience in a certain way. Um, I'll explain what I mean in a second, but um, oh, well, here, right here, uh, we have this interior of the car, Wade driving. Now where's my daughter? He's just said, and now he looks in his gun to see is this, that it's loaded. So we've just learned that he is bringing a gun to this encounter. Now, we figure Buscemi has a gun, right? But Buscemi, uh, Carl Showalter here, as they have this roof rooftop encounter, Buscemi doesn't know that Wade has a gun. Now, a shitty movie maker, uh, maybe a lesser director, I should say, uh, would approach this a little differently. 
the gun would maybe come out of nowhere uh, at this encounter, right? Uh, so the audience wouldn't know that Wade has a gun. And they and that director, because he's not as good as the Coens, would think that, or that screenwriter, because it's, that screenwriter wouldn't be as good as the Coens, would think, oh, it's better. It's going to shock the audience. They're going to be shocked when that gun comes out. Um, this is something Hitchcock understood very well, I think, in most of his movies. No, 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 no. The way you create suspense is you give the audience a piece of information that another character doesn't have so that you have an encounter like this where we know that that gun that just shot a moment ago, that just shot Buscemi in the face, we know that that gun is there and that it, and that it's going to probably go off. Buscemi has no clue. Um, but it's just a... It's the little detail of the way information was given to us there that um, people people will recognize that the scene is exciting and suspenseful, but I think that's a big reason why, because you, you have to look at it from the perspective of um, the screenwriting there, uh, the screenwriter made a choice there and did not make another choice, made the choice that was made, and it was... Um, by design, you know, I mean, um, I really do think the Coens are, uh, in terms of American filmmakers, uh, you know, right at the top of that uh, list, uh, uh, it's probably not fair to do a, a rank them, but, um, you know, I, I believe all, the, but for the colors, maybe all the cars are kind of the same here, right? Or those two cars were the, the Oldsmobile. So the Oldsmobile that Jerry gave the kidnappers has just gone by him. And uh, this will be the second parking lot attendant casualty. <laughs> yeah, and these two cars are... Now, I know that um, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the Ferrari company um, had to do with that, but uh, getting that product placement. But, I, you know, Oldsmobiles were, these Oldsmobiles were old by the time this movie came out. So it's free advertising for an old car. The little bit there with the trunk opening is, is kind of cool, isn't it? Um, because we're wondering what, you know, we still don't have a read on Jerry at this point in the movie. I mean, other than he's just a, a lowly coward and a, a dastardly father and um, person, um, we, we don't know what he's thinking there in the car when he sees Wade, Wade's body out there. And then that trunk pops open. You know, we don't have an interior of him. Um, thinking or anything like that. That that trunk pops popping open tells tells us that he's he's going in deep. You know, he's going even further than he thought he'd have to. Now he's got his father's in law's body. The little bit of business with the chair here is interesting to me, uh, noteworthy, <laughs> um, because he when he when he didn't have snow on those boots when, before he went out, he put his boots on in that chair. And Wade was still alive. He comes back a few minutes later, snowy boots, same chair, Wade is dead. The the mundaneness of the house and the normalcy of the house and the act of putting on and taking off boots is, um, you know, made sort of um, macabre or is kind of made disturbing 
by the fact that he he's got a body in the trunk now and and I think that sitting in the chair there in the hallway makes is kind of a way of marking it maybe and then Scotty calls to him from off screen telling him that Stan Grossman has called but maybe that child actor um maybe he wasn't there that day and that's why they they did him calling out. I don't know you see odd things like that in movies and this is my favorite scene in the movie, uh, and I don't have a, a good explanation why. Um, I guess I really like this actor, Mr. Mora, who plays Mr. Mora. I like that it's played in one shot. What I like the most is that this anecdote we get about the Buscemi character acting a fool at this bar, Eklund and Swedlands, where Mr. Mora bartends. And from the background there, you see this is a pretty blue-collar neighborhood, but not the kind of place that uh, a piece of shit like Buscemi would be welcome uh, by a good man like Mr. Mora and his wife, who uh, urged him to call the police. And he and he, he's just said he made the assumption that Buscemi uh, was talking about Moose Lake when he said, I'm tired of being up at that lake. Uh, uh, and not White Bear Lake. And later on, we'll find out um, that that assumption was correct. Anyway, uh, what I really like here is that this anecdote, uh, maybe, you know, we'll use the example of a lesser filmmaker again, right? What would a lesser filmmaker do? Well, we might have a flashback of uh, a fun funny scene of the Buscemi character acting a fool at this bar, um, getting into the argument with Mr. Mora about um, looking for, quote-unquote, action. Again, that use of euphemism on the part of um, Buscemi. Uh, we would have it in a whole flashback sequence, and it would be wild and funny, and it might be very good. Here we get it and as an anecdote from this player uh, from this uh, sideline player this man who lives in the community and it and it's all the more vivid because by this point in the movie we know the Buscemi character so well and we know what he's like where we hear that story and we go yep that's the guy you know I mean the funny looking line the guy the fact that he's he thinks he's funny looking and the hooker thinks that he's funny looking you know the, the paying off of that that funny looking thing is um uh <laughs> you know, it, it's quite an insult to Steve Buscemi, I guess, but it's, it plays very funny in the movie. Um, but we get we get the anecdote from Mr. Mora, right? And it's this man who lives in this modest house with his wife, um, who's modestly shoving his, shoveling his driveway, sweeping his driveway with that push broom. He appears to be a nice, nice enough guy. If you, I mean, if you read the movie as a movie about place, or if you think, you know, that this place is uh, important to the movie, and I and I think it's integral to understanding how the movie is doing what it's doing, um, putting the anecdote in the mouth of a normal person in the in the community sort of is a way of reminding us that all of this blood that we now see covering Buscemi's hands and his face and his pants there as he buries the money. Um, all of this horrid um, violence and stuff is happening 
in this place. Such things happen here too. Sure, maybe not as often, but uh, one of the taglines for the movie on a, a poster I have. Uh, oh, I don't have the poster anymore, but... Um, boy, that doesn't matter. Um, a lot can happen in the middle of nowhere. That was the, one of the taglines for the movie. Um, so I think Mr. Mora reminds us that... Um, We are in a community, even though, you know, that, that landscape that we just saw looks kind of bleak and uh, lifeless. So Marge is now learning from uh, a third party that Mike Yanagita's uh, stories were bullshit, uh, that he's really quite ill. And he was actually pestering the woman that he said he was married to. Um, I'll tell you what I like about this scene. We use the example of the way cops who solve murders are normally portrayed. Uh, we'll, we'll continue with that example. Think if Clint Eastwood or Bruce Willis or Charles Bronson or someone like that were uh, playing a scene like this in a movie where they were a cop solving a murder. Uh, what would they be doing while they were on the phone? And what was Marge doing? Well, Marge was, well, look, what Bruce Willis or Clint Eastwood would be doing would be smoking a cigarette menacingly as they uh, glare at um, mugshots that they've got pinned to the wall, or, or uh, they'd be cleaning, he'd be cleaning his gun, you know, and choosing the bullet that he's going to put in the head of the criminal. What was Marge doing? She was neatly folding her sweaters and putting her things in her suitcase. And then we saw there a moment ago, she goes to the fast food joint and uh, has herself a little breakfast sandwich. It, it underscores, you know, the, that her, her character, um, traits that we've had throughout the movie of she's a different kind of cop or she's the least likely kind of cop in a movie anyway. This interaction, it really is a shame they don't have more scenes together, but um, this interaction, the second interview with Jerry uh, that Marge conducts, uh, when she walked in a moment ago and you saw her walking in amid the cars, she had a different look on her face. She looked exhausted and pissed, even though this is sort of first thing in the morning we were supposed to gather. Um, here, the small talk has been replaced by sarcasm. Uh, still a friendly kind of sarcasm, but a, a biting sarcasm. She's still smiling. And her aggression, uh, her uh, a little more aggression, is met with uh, counter-aggression, if that makes any sense, on the part of Jerry. Um, and, and then he gets uh, snippy, as she's about to tell him here, that there, uh, there's no cause to get snippy with me, sir. I'm just doing my job here. She'll say that in a, in a moment here. And now, she, I think that's the moment right there when she, when she says the snippy line, where she really begins to suspect that Jerry is mixed up in this or that Jerry has something pretty pretty important to hide. Uh, 
those little stupid golf statues uh, that you see behind Marge there just before she got up um, in Jerry's office. I, I do think they play in a little bit of, and those trophies that look almost juvenile, like something his son should have in his room. Um, but especially the golf trophies, I think those play in contrast to the the statues in Wade's office, right? That are more, I think I use the word virile or menacing or manly. Um, those are sort of cartoonish, those things. He looks, he the way uh, Macy, uh, <laughs> uh, the way Macy uh, looks down at her just before he exits, I sort of think he, it's almost like maybe he's noting that she's pregnant and he, he's of course about to take off and she, she's going to say he's fleeing the interview. Um, I think he notes her pregnancy and the fact that this woman, uh, who is, despite being a police chief, cannot, uh, at least chase him on foot. She's in no condition to sprint. And we see, we saw her there, um, first looking at the what Jerry was doing is making the VIN numbers uh, illegible on those cars that he um, took loans against that don't exist. So he's trying to buy himself more time. Uh, that's what he was doing when she walked in. She she saw that clipboard. And then she saw that picture of Jean. And um, I have a friend who thinks that maybe something else clicks in her mind there. And maybe this guy has got something, kidnapped his wife. I don't know about that, but... Um, she does see the picture of, of Jean. The Stormar character is on screen now watching this soap opera that is very staticky on that television. Um, he is not shocked by, uh, again, the, there's sort of this uh, layered in comedic uh, thing with him where he's shocked by big things that, or he's not shocked by big things like shooting someone in the head or uh, kidnapping a mother but he is shocked by a stupid soap opera trope, a very trite soap opera that, you know, a woman's been pregnant and he drops his fork, you know, uh, she's been secretly pregnant. Um, he's shocked by getting bitten and he needs a little bit of Neosporin, you know, it's, and you see, even though he's shocked by what happened to the, the fake woman on TV, he probably um, hit her with a brick or something. Uh, and that's why Gene is on the ground unconscious. At any rate, I think the Stormar character is in a in a, in a tradition of stoic, quiet, emotionless, cruel uh, villains or anti-heroes in movies. Most notably, the Clint Eastwood character in um, *The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly*, and a couple other uh, spaghetti westerns. Uh, few for a few dollars more, *High Plains Drifter*. I don't know if you call High Plains Drifter a spaghetti western. It was uh, sort of, uh, I believe Eastwood directed it, no? Um, but I love that movie. But anyway, he was still, even the long coat that Stormar has on his shoulders here that he wears, wears throughout the movie is reminiscent of the good, the bad, and the ugly. The coat Eastwood wore in the good, the bad, and the ugly. So there's a tradition of these emotionless characters who are, and the Lee Van Cleef character in that movie is sort of emotionless and capable of cruelty and a uh, person of few words. Uh, here's again a euphemism or a uh, uh, suggestive, this time body language on the part of Buscemi, flashing his gun. In the reaction shot, Stormar doesn't actually look. He doesn't see it, but maybe he senses it. 
now we have this slaying of Buscemi. The fact that um, that's an axe, not a shovel. Some people think it's a shovel. Um, the fact that he puts his hat on when he to to kill Buscemi uh, before leaving the house. Uh, that's that's kind of cute uh, in a in a disturbing way. We don't feel so bad that Buscemi got his finally um, and ends up in a wood chipper, as he will in a, in a few seconds, in the most uh, famous uh, scene in the movie. Um, we don't feel so bad because we recall, I don't think I pointed it out, but uh, we recall that when the two kidnappers were separated and, um, you know, Stormar stays at home watching the kidnappee and Buscemi is out there um, gallivanting with hookers. Um, he calls Jerry and asks for more money. But what he did just now to Stormar is give him his original share of the money, uh, and not the, any share of all of this extra money that he's asked for. So he's cheated his own partner. So we don't feel as badly because even the code of crim, he's broken even the code of criminals. Um, and what got him killed is not that, right? Stormar doesn't know that, or we don't have any indication that he knows that he's been cheated. But what got Buscemi killed is this car business. He didn't want to split the car. And he, um, his greed and running his mouth got him in trouble again and, and, um, and uh, led to his death. The point at which Marge, as she um, is about to discover the wood chipper, the point at which she draws her gun, as she's just done right now, uh, is always uh, curious to me. I, was, I would think a cop would draw her gun earlier, but I don't know anything. What? Oh, yes. Um, no, no. I When I said... Uh, Someone's telling me here. When I said uh, cops don't smile, I don't have anything against police or, you know, I, it's just that, uh, you know, I, I find that um, they tend to be sort of stoic. That sort of stoic, emotionless character like um, Stormar uh, is not just a trope in movies. It's in Coen Brothers movies, too. Think of the guy on a motorcycle in Raising Arizona. Uh, even Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, although, you know, Cormac McCarthy wrote that character originally and came up with that character originally. It's interesting that the Coens were attracted to a movie in which that character is the uh, antagonist. He's still wearing the hat. So this is a big moment in the movie, um, the woodchipper scene. Um... She'll shoot twice, I think, and miss the first time. And this is a replay of the original murder, right? When Stormar, I think I called it a kill shot, right? He shoots the kid in the back, the heart and lungs area. Now the scene replays. So the kid, the, the murderer, is being apprehended in the same uh, choreography, if you will, uh, that the original, his crime took place. Uh, do they call that poetic justice? Uh, I think so. Um, Marge, of course, you notice there, shoots him in the leg, right? She doesn't take a kill shot. 
she is not like him. She might, the roles have might have, you know, she might be playing his role in terms of the choreography there, but she's, she's, they're very different in that sense. She's not going to take a kill shot. And in this final, um, uh, or in this one of the closing scenes here, as Marge drives him in the car, we hear that she is again speculating that, or concluding from the information she now has that, um, you know, she pulls it all together and we hear that she's figured every, everything out. Um, I've been accused of, um, not seeing any flaws in the movie. I, I think I mentioned that, uh, well, that's not true. I mean, I think I've, I've mentioned that the Marge character might be a little too perfect, but one, I don't, I wouldn't call it flaw, I guess, but one thing that might bother me a little bit is this final moralistic speech that Marge gives Stormar. Now, a lot of people really like this scene. They consider it one of the best scenes in the movie, the speech she gives him. And here you are, she just said, and she's going to say now, and it's a beautiful day. Um, it's no doubt beautifully written dialogue here. And of course, Stormar says nothing because he, that's what he does. But I don't, the reason I say it might be flawed is I don't think that's what Marge does. I don't think that's the character we've we've met here, uh, give moralistic speeches like that. I think she would be more inquisitive or I don't know. It, it doesn't, it, that's not harmonious with her past behavior. Although, you know, she was changed after she found out Yana Gita was lying to her, right? She, she was more assertive and she was rougher on Jerry. These cars coming in out of the blank whiteness, these emergency vehicles and police cars, obviously is a recapitulation of the opening moments uh, where Jerry's car towing the other burnt umber Sierra. It's a burnt umber, he says. But, uh, Marge calls it a tan Sierra. Uh, it, it's a sort of recapitulation of that, to use the uh, orchestral term. Uh, we're, we're, um, it, we're being bookended with uh, uh, cars emerging out of that whiteness. Action emerging out of blankness where it seems like nothing right a white screen a snowed out screen seems like nothing but all of a sudden events like the ones in we're watching now emerge you know the most dastardly things happen uh, out of this seeming seemingly bland milieu that's kind of one of the themes of the movie i think it's a horrifying scene, uh, this arrest of Jerry. He Again, he's cowardly trying to escape out the window, as he just saw. But, um, you know, we get that scene to know that, that he's been caught, I guess, but I don't feel sympathy for him. I don't think that... I, I think the movie ends where our sympathy is supposed to lie with people like these two who are in bed together now. They are not perfect people, despite what I might say about Marge's uh, uh, behaviors. Uh, they, they are not perfect people, but they are good people. So what of the fact that uh, w w this whole thing um, with the stamps, I think, uh, 
you know, I don't really read a whole lot into it in terms of, you know, uh, I don't think this is a no country for old men ending where this is a deep symbolic thing. I think it's just, it's just a, a quintessential interaction between these two, right? She's encouraging him and telling him that, um, well, I read a little bit into it, I guess. I said, you know, she's saying the three cent stamps, people need those too. Um, that, um, everything has a value, even the things that don't seem to have value. Um, and if you forget that, you might have your wife kidnapped. <laughs> so the film ends there uh, with uh, John Carroll Lynch, the actor who plays Norm. Uh, his hand is on uh, as you just saw, his hand is on Marge's stomach, and they are sort of serenely staring at the television in their bedroom, and he says, two more months. Um, we didn't even discuss it very much, but um, the fact that she's pregnant as a character is not just something that makes her more interesting. Uh, and and it's a, it's a cool way of humanizing a character, too, you know. Um, it's this totally amazing and, and unique experience to be pregnant, yet it's so common, you know. Um, uh, it, is, um, it is this difficult, difficult ordeal, yet it is common. Well, I think the fact that she's, that she's pregnant has to do with um, uh, probably nothing more than, you know, the, she's, she's conscious, I think, at the end there. Marge is very conscious. And, and Fran McDormand's performance, I think, is going for something along these lines, maybe. And she's conscious that she's uh, bringing a life, a new life, into this world. And it's a world where, uh, that is, despite uh, us polishing it with, or giving it the veneer, of normalcy, and um, we think things like family and community are very stable, reliable things. Um, they are uh, just as fraught with chaos as anything else, and um, it's a theme throughout the Coen Brothers filmography, I think, uh, uh, the randomness of the universe, the uh, way that the lives of different people can be thrown together. Um, cruelty, um, cruelty versus, uh, literally cruelty versus, um, people who, uh, have a little bit more of a conscience. And so at the end of Fargo, I think Marge is highly aware of this chaos in her community and uh, or her area of the country, as it were, and, uh, and everywhere. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit of anxiety about bringing a new life into the world, but it's also, uh, an acceptance, you know, there's almost an aspect of Fargo, um, that's almost like David Lynch in, in Blue Velvet. The idea of, uh, you know, polite society and, idealized neighborhoods and and then there's this you know the the dirt underneath this seedy uh underworld 
Um, I think Fargo alters that a little bit, modifies it by just um, saying that not as that one maybe isn't uh, existing beneath the other, but that they are interacting and that they are um, they are this big soup, this commingled soup where um, someone can live in a you know very domesticated, idealized house like Jerry and still do things as like have his wife kidnapped and do these awful things. So there's a lot of that too. <laughs> I think that about does it for us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.